Turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. We're only going to be looking at verse, two verses this uh, morning. We plan on going all the way to the end of the chapter, but decided to focus on the first two verses of the paragraph because of the sort of diversity in that paragraph and the whole section would make it difficult to deal with every part of it adequately, and also the importance of the two verses we're going to talk about, especially in our culture. So Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, put it in context, God is still giving the law to Israel. He's saying, you're going to be a nation. Nations need laws. That's what make them a nation. And so he says, here's the kind of nation you're going to be. Which will be a nation that is holy and will show my holiness to others, which means you need to look like me. And so the law is a way for Israel at that time in their history to look like God. So verse 22, uh, chapter 22 and verse 16, it says, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Bit of a controversial verse. So when you read historical documents, which is, this is one of them, uh, historians will teach you, you need to do two things. In order to understand what the document is saying, you first need to read it sympathetically. You need to try to put it in not necessarily the best light, but you need to go along with the author as he speaks. Often you will go and, and you'll deal with someone that you don't like, and you will be against them before you start reading them. Well, what happens to your interpretation of their writings? It's negative, no matter what. So a good historian will read sympathetically, even when reading people they disagree with. So when you read Hitler's Mein Kampf, I assume that you're going to be anti-Hitler. Yet you would seek to be as sympathetic as possible while you read it so that you can understand what he was saying. If you don't do that, you come up with, with revisionist history. That's not really a, necessarily a biblical principle, but it applies to biblical documents. You read sympathetically. And secondly, and this is one of the biggest dangers that people face, don't read it as if it was written this year. Automatically, you think you know what this verse means because you understand the words. But you don't understand the words. You understand what the words mean in 2018. And when you read historical documents, the greatest danger is to read them as if they were written to you in your language. So reading historical documents, read it sympathetically, and you realize you need to understand what it meant to them in their language. Now, the Bible's a little bit trickier because it wasn't written in English. So when it says... Uh, a bride price, for instance, that's not what it says. There's a Hebrew word that that's being translated. Do you know what the Hebrew word means? If you don't, then you can't understand the, what the passage means. So let's be careful when we read historical documents to do them faithfully, read them sympathetically, and read them in their context, and not assume this is referring to whatever century you are most familiar with. So, what is this passage talking about? It's the same thing that everything is talking about in the law. One of the main reasons God gave the law was to protect people from evil. Laws are meant to restrain evil. And who is most affected by evil? Those who are vulnerable. 
So the passage is about protecting the vulnerable. Uh, if you read it through the lens of control, you're misreading it. You should read it through the lens of protection. So this passage says marriage is a covenant that protects the parties, and sex is the sign and renewal ceremony of that covenant. Premarital sex undermines and exploits the lack of commitment. But ultimately, sex and marriage point us to a greater covenant between Christ and his church, which is a faithful and renewing marriage. Okay, there's a lot of stuff there, so we're going to talk about three things. What this is talking about, it's talking about premarital sex, what it meant to them in Israel, how premarital sex and marriage in general affects us and what it means in our, our context, and then thirdly, how it points to Christ and his marriage with the church. So look at the first thing. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed, it's not talking about rape, first off. He entices her. There's some sort of transaction. There's some sort of pressure, influence, seduction, however you want to say it. And he manages to have a, a physical relationship with her. He must marry her. Okay, so let's go back. To understand the context, we have to understand what came before it. God invented marriage. He created marriage. Genesis chapter 2, we have a marriage model. And any time marriage is ever mentioned in the Bible, you understand how God meant it. So in Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam, then he creates Eve, and, he's, and he gives Eve to Adam. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Adam and Eve, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There's a lot packed into that. But it's saying marriage is a commitment. Not just any commitment. We would refer to it as a covenant commitment. A formal bonding of two parties together. So man and woman come together not as partners. This is not talking about partnership. He says, bone of my bones, they shall leave his mother and father, join to his wife, become one flesh. That's a, that's a covenant bond there that's sealed and renewed and reminded by the sexual relationship. I know it's a little touchy, but one author I was reading, he said, Christians are much more prudish than the Bible is. We pretend like we don't think ever talk about sex, but the Bible talks about it all the time. And if we don't take the Bible's view on these things, we'll have a warped view of them. We'll either be too far into it or too repressed. So, when it says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and join to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There's your model for marriage. It's a spiritual and a physical union. So you join into a covenant, you bond together into a formal commitment, and then the physical relationship completes that union and reminds you of the commitment. When God gave the covenant to Noah, he said, I will not flood the earth. He gave a sign of the covenant, the rainbow. When he gave the covenant to Abraham, he gave a sign of the covenant, circumcision. When he gave the covenant to Adam and Eve, he gave a sign of the covenant, which is sex. And every time a husband and wife come together, they renew the covenant. That's what's happening here. That's the model this is being built on. Okay, but then you think of the culture that Exodus is written in, and this is where we run into problems. So when you read, a man entices the virgin, he shall pay the bride price. 
if her father gives permission, what does that sound like? Well, in this generation, it sounds like a patriarchal women as property. But again, what's, the, what's one of the rules for understanding historical documents? Is that what it meant to them? First of all, what's the culture they live in? They don't live in the modern world. I know that sounds obvious, but do we think of it? They don't live in America. They don't live in England. They don't live in Australia. They live in the ancient Near East. And the ancient Near East was modeled around the physical uh, lifestyle. There were no machines. There was no technology. You made things move how? By pushing them or getting an animal to push them for you. So what was, the, what was the energy source for that world? It was human muscle. We understand this from Exodus because what, where did the, the Israelites come from? Slavery. Why were they enslaved? Because manpower was needed. Muscles were needed to move things. And so it was a lifestyle built around physical strength. The Israelites lived by livestock and farming. What do those require? The ability to move things with your hands to farm, to plow, to wrangle animals. That's, that's hard work. If you've ever worked on a farm or anything like that, you get worn out. So that's the lifestyle. And then secondly, how did you survive? You survived by not being killed by foreign people, by your neighbor. Remember we talked about violence? There was no police force. There was no standing army. When the bad guys came to your house, you grabbed your sword and you fought. You didn't shoot them. There were no guns. You engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And whoever's stronger wins. Okay, so in a lifestyle where the economic and the security of the entire nation was built around human strength, guess who comes out on top every time? Men. Biology says that men have a larger bone structure and muscle mass. They're just stronger. So in a culture, in a lifestyle ruled by strength, it ends up being ruled by men because men are stronger. This does produce a patriarchy most of the time. But it means that the physical, the physically weak, physically weak, are vulnerable. You can't call the police. You can't really even lock your doors. If you want to be successful, you have to go out and you have to work with your hands. And the stronger you are, the more successful you'll be, the more protected you'll be. So that's the context that God is speaking into. A culture ruled by strength, which means a culture ruled by men. So then he says, if it's ruled by men and it's controlled by men, then who will be weak? Women and children. Because of the biology. Now, we could say it's wrong. We could say we live a better life. That doesn't matter. The facts are there. And so in, in, you go down, we'll talk about this next week. In verse 22 of that passage, it says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Why not? Because they can't protect themselves. If you get into a wrestling match with a child, who wins? You get into a, a man gets into a wrestling match, a fist fight with a woman, what happens? So they're vulnerable. So what did God do? He gave family to protect the vulnerable. The family was designed to protect the vulnerable. Men are strong. Men were intended to use that strength to protect those who are less physically strong. And so fathers and husbands protected women and children. The father protected the children because the children couldn't fight off people. They couldn't plow the fields. The husband protected the wife because in order to not be poor your whole life, you had to go out and work hard. 
And so the, the fathers and the husbands protected the women and the children. There's your model for this lifestyle. Okay, then he says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed, who is not engaged, who doesn't have a man that's given to her as a husband and lies with her, he should surely pay the bride price. Premarital sex undermined the commitment required to protect women. Who was supposed to protect the woman? The father or the husband? She doesn't have a husband. Another man comes along. He's supposed to commit to protecting her, which was called marriage. This man doesn't. He bypasses it. So who's the protector? So premarital sex undermined the commitment needed for protection. It preyed on the most at risk. When this situation happens, who pays for it? Well, if she gets pregnant, she can't rely on this man. They're not married. Who raises the child? The woman does, which puts her at even more disadvantage than she was before. A pregnant woman has difficulty plowing fields. So this man shows up, seduces the woman, she gets pregnant, and he's gone. And she's left alone to raise the child. You see how, much, how vulnerable she is? So premarital sex undermined the commitment. It preyed on the weak. Now, that's not what he told her. That's not what you hear between two people, that the man is a predator seeking to take advantage of the weak. No, it's about love. It's about relationship. But that's not what this is saying something different. It's saying, no, that's what it sounds like, but that's not what it is. If you don't protect, you're praying. You're a predator. So this man had to do something. Now, when it says here that he should pay the price of a virgin, this could be understood to say that if you're not a virgin, then you're some sort of damaged goods. That's misunderstanding the context. This is talking about covenants, marriage as a covenant. When a man married a woman, she would produce his lineage, which in that culture was who would take care of you. Your kids would take care of you. There had to be covenant faithfulness. The, the cost of adultery was death. So what it's saying here is not that the virgin is damaged goods. It's that she said that a man or woman who did not who engage in premarital sex was saying they didn't respect the covenant. They weren't going to be faithful to it. They weren't going to wait and then be faithful in the covenant. So if you're a man looking for a wife at this time, the culture said the family is the basic unit for both your future and their protection. A woman who has shown that she will not be faithful to the covenant would have more trouble finding a husband. This is important to say she's not damaged goods. She's demonstrated an unfaithfulness to a covenant, which makes it harder for her to marry. So the man would then have to pay the bride price, even if he doesn't marry her. He's done something wrong. He's caused her to make it more difficult for her to marry someone. So what God's law is doing here is God is protecting the, the weak. He's protecting the vulnerable. He's not saying you can't have fun. He's, can't, he's not saying... That, there's something shameful and wrong and dirty about these people. He's protecting them. This was common back then. In, in Hammurabi's code, which was a, a, a code that was written about the same time, a law, it says to make justice appear in the land. This is the point of the law. To destroy the evil and wicked so that the strong might not oppress the weak. So that the strong might not oppress the weak and so as to give justice to the orphan girl and to the widow, to the vulnerable. That's what God is doing here. He's not saying, if you have premarital sex, you're a bad person. He's saying you're a predator. 
He's saying you're undermining the family. He's saying you're breaking down society. He's saying you're causing people to be at risk. Are those bad things? Yes. But you see it's a bigger picture here. It's related to the whole community. And so God gave laws. First of all, he said the man is responsible. Is this saying that the woman was not responsible? It's saying in the law, the man is responsible not to have sex with a woman before they're married. Now, that's not what we hear. I was taught by many preachers growing up that it was the woman's job to resist the man so as to remain pure. And that men just, boys will be boys. You see what God is doing? He's saying, no, men are responsible because men are stronger. And the strong always have more responsibility than the weak. You can't blame your behavior on your desires. Well, I'm just a guy. Can't help it. God doesn't hear that. He says, you're strong. You're going to take advantage of someone who's weak. You are responsible. There's a reason we love comic books so much. It's because they reflect this truth. Spider-Man's famous line, with great, res- with great power comes great responsibility. That holds true. If you live in a physical society where men are stronger, you live in a patriarchy, you live in whatever, then men are responsible. And so what does the man have to do here? He has to pay the bride price and he has to marry her. He's not purchasing her. So when you hear bride price, you probably think he's buying a wife, right? That's not what the word means. The word means three things. He's paying her family because he's taking a worker away. At that time, the family worked. You had a lot of kids, so they'd go out and work in the fields. They could do all that sort of stuff. He's taking one of those workers away. The family would then suffer because they didn't have someone to help them work. So he would pay them to compensate for taking away a worker. Secondly, it was a gift to show the value of the commitment. There were no shotgun weddings. There's no Vegas chapels. You wanted to marry someone, you had to put the money forward. You had to say, this is how much I want to be in this commitment, enough to pay money. That's different than what we view marriage is. It's like, oh, you know, it's a big, whatever, go down to the courthouse, get married. That's how we got married. He's saying, no, you got to put money down to show that you're serious. Why? Because this woman in this culture is going to depend on you to keep her safe and to provide for her. And if you can't put money down up front, we don't trust you. You see how it's protecting? And then thirdly, this money went to the woman. In all the culture codes, when it happens in Genesis with with Rachel, you gave the money to the woman. Why? Because if she leaves her father's house and goes with her husband and her husband leaves her, then what? So he gives her insurance money, a bride price. She says, if you want to marry me, give me some money in case you turn out to be a deadbeat and I don't have to live in poverty. So this man, so what God is saying is if you want to have premarital sex, if you want to indulge your desires, here's the cost. You got to marry the person. You got to take care of them. You can't have sex without commitment. And even if the father, who is the protector, he doesn't own the daughter, he protects the daughter, and he realizes that this man who seduced her can't protect her, he would not hand her over to his protection. Now think of protection at this time. That means protection against thieves, against murderers, against oppressive regimes. So he would say, you can't marry because you won't take care of her. He still had to pay the bride price because of what he did. God is not saying that you're a 
dirty person if you have sex. He's saying you need to protect people. Provide for them. Don't take things from them if you're not going to commit to them. You see how God's law is good and just and helpful and protective of the weak? How it magnifies the value of women? How it holds men responsible? How it protects society? It's not oppressive. It's not patriarchal. But it does go against our sensibilities. So what does this mean for us today? Because we don't live in this culture, mostly. Right? Men are not more powerful in our world, right? Yes, of course they are. We don't live in as much of a patriarchy, but generally, men have more power than women. Look at politics. Look at business. Look at the army. Look at the police force. If you're a woman and you're walking alone at night, do you feel safe? If you're a man walking alone at night, do you feel more safe? Of course. Because physical altercations still happen. And if you're a 200-pound man, you feel safer than a 110-pound woman. Okay, so this still applies to us today. Women still get pregnant and have to carry children, and men don't. So sex for us today, premarital sex, there's kind of different ways of viewing sex today. The world views it as insignificant, as meaningless, meant to be done safely to prevent the transmission of diseases, but just be careful and it's fine. It's no big deal. The hookup culture, if you're familiar with that, it's a way to indulge in sex without any commitment to weigh you down because sex is meaningless. Sex is just a biological drive to satisfy your flesh so you can move on. That's not what the Bible says. You see how big a deal this is. This man was only with this girl one time, and now he's committed to her for life. Yes, because the sign of the covenant needs to go with the covenant. Sex and marriage are bound together. What, what society does today, it, tries to, it tears apart our body and our soul. It puts a psychological divide so that your body and your mind are not connected. The Bible says differently in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both in them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You see what he's saying? God will raise up our bodies, but he doesn't say bodies. He says us. You are your body. You are not just your mind or your spirit. You are your body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take, then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh? There's no such thing as meaningless sex. And for you to engage in meaningless sex means that you have put a divide between your spirit and your body. You have put up walls inside of yourself. You've had to steal your mind against what your body's doing. That is unhealthy and destructive. The sex ethic of the world today is crushing. It's destroying people. It's, it's causing this sort of division within themselves. The Bible says, for your own sake, do it God's way. Your body and your soul are connected. And so what you do with your body affects your soul and vice versa. You can't separate them. So premarital sex is not just recreation. It's soul binding. It's joining together with someone. It's making a bond with someone that you then 
cut the bond and leave them behind. What does that do to you? It's not the way God designed us to be, physically or mentally. So what's the church do? The church views premarital sex as corrupting, as shameful, as damaged goods. But is that what the Bible says? No. It misunderstands sex. Sex is God-created. and God only creates good things. So to view sex as shameful or dirty or wrong is to view God as shameful, dirty, or wrong. Is that what we're doing sometimes? By being embarrassed to talk about it? By always viewing it sort of distastefully? It's good because God gave it. And what did God mean for it? God created sex to bond people in a commitment. Keller says, you shouldn't do with your body what you won't do with the rest of your life. God created sex to say to a person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. That's the purpose. When you do that outside of marriage, you're saying, I'll commit physically to you, but you can't have any of the rest. Now, this is difficult for some people in the church because they are maybe engaged or they're committed to each other in a relationship. But you know what happens when, to your life when you break up with someone you're not married to? Not much, right? It doesn't go with you the rest of your life. There's very little commitment for someone who's not married. So sex outside of marriage is saying, give me everything. Give me your whole body. Stand naked before me, totally vulnerable, and I may leave you tomorrow. But I love you. Prove it. Covenants are the way God works. Man wants to take without committing. Premarital sex takes intimacy without the protection of commitment. It's a house built on sand. You go into a house built on sand and it feels just like a house built on the rock. So sometimes couples will say, we love each other, we're committed, so we'll have sex, and it feels so right because we love each other. But without the rock of commitment, something comes along and suddenly the house isn't so secure anymore. Sex outside of marriage is a house built on sand. It feels safe, but it's not. Sex also is used as idolatry. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christians. You desire desperately to be accepted and loved. And your body tells you that sex will give you acceptance and love. That's idolatry. That's worshiping a false god. That's saying I have a spiritual need for a place in this world and a physical need can fulfill it. And I will do everything to fulfill that need. And if I can't do it, I can't live. That may not be your experience, but that is the world's teaching. That is what young people believe. I must have a physical relationship or I won't be accepted. God says physical needs can't satisfy you. Only God can satisfy you. So to worship sex, to bow before the altar of sex, is to reject God. It's not because you're a bad person or sex is dirty. It's because you must be fulfilled by God. And seeking fulfillment in another person will destroy you. How does this point to Christ? Christ in the church is what this passage is talking about. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards something better. 
Marriage points to Christ. It points to Christ's covenant with us. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. It says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother, father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. You hear the, the, the sexual and the marriage language? This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was talking about marriage. He's saying, yes, all of that points to Christ. God has built the world in such a way that you can't get away from Jesus. The very nature of society is built on marriage, which points to Christ. It's a committed, permanent, sacrificial bond. Christ died for you before he had you. He gave up everything for the church before he had the church. Compare that to the man in, in Exodus who wanted to take the woman before he committed to her. That's what God is saying is wrong and what is right. It's total sacrifice before a relationship. And just as sex renews the covenant, reminds of the covenant, so the Lord's Supper reminds us of our covenant with God. Not saying they're the same, but it's the same structure. that The rainbow reminded Noah of the covenant. Circumcision reminded Abraham of the covenant. The Passover reminded Israel of the covenant. Sex reminds you of the covenant you made with your spouse. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of the covenant God made with us. You see how God is building patterns through the Bible to remind us over and over again? So to have sex outside of marriage is to destroy it. But God doesn't do that with us. He's faithful to his covenant. You see, all this talk may make you feel guilty about stuff you've done in the past, about stuff you want to do, about the thought life that you have. God says if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. In other words, your heart is no longer faithful to your spouse. If you're not married, your heart is no longer faithful to Christ. You're now seeking other people. If that makes you feel guilty, it's because the law is speaking to you. It's saying you are a bad person. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says the law will break you, but the gospel will save you. Amen. So Christ says you're a terrible person because you can't be faithful. So I'll be faithful. The covenant with Christ shows Christ as the perfect husband. He's not this man in Exodus who seeks out someone weak to prey upon and then leaves them behind, who has to be forced to commit. Christ committed first. He is the perfect husband. He sacrificed all before taking. But more than that, he's faithful to us. You ever been in a relationship and they're not faithful to you? It's not Christ. Christ is always faithful to us. But even that can add guilt. But here's what's better. Christ is faithful for us. You don't need to be faithful to Christ. He's faithful for you. That's what the gospel says. You see, the old marriage covenant says you have to be faithful to each other. The new covenant in Christ says that he's faithful to you and for you. That's what the cross was. The cross was Jesus paying for your unfaithfulness. You see, if you're not a Christian right now, you'll pay for your unfaithfulness. You'll pay for every sin you ever committed. The only way out of that is for Christ to pay it for you. You see, you can't move forward and just do better from here on out. What about the stain of sin? 
What about the brokenness you've left behind? What about the people you've hurt and abandoned? You need someone to make up for that, and that's what Christ does. He's faithful to us and for us. You see, Jesus married an unfaithful wife. He married the woman that this man had betrayed. We're not the virgins here. We've been corrupted, and Jesus married us. Jesus is not looking for perfect people. He's marrying broken people. He's marrying people who have been unfaithful to the covenant, who have betrayed him, who have betrayed God, who have lived for self, who have hurt people. He's saying, I want you to be my wife. I want to be in a permanent, eternal covenant with you. God married an unfaithful wife. Jesus married an unfaithful wife. But here's the gospel that we don't ever talk about. He's renewing and recreating his wife. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Does that sound like you? No. You see, Christ said, I'll marry the woman who's been unfaithful so that I can make her faithful. I'll marry the church that's been unfaithful so that I can recreate her. This is not theoretical. So we understand that God forgives sin. Justification. Oh, God will forgive what you did in the past. That's only half the gospel. The other half says that God will undo what you did in the past. Were you unfaithful? God will undo that. Were you immoral? God doesn't just forgive it. He undoes it. He makes you into someone who's never done anything wrong before. The fundamentalist independent Baptist teaching that says that sex defiles you for the rest of your life if you did it before marriage is anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. If you grew up hearing that if you have sex with someone before marriage that the rest of your life will be affected, that you can't ever get over that, they were not preaching the gospel to you. They were undermining the work of God. If you can't, or you are told that you can't get over past sexual sins or unfaithfulness, you miss the gospel. The gospel says that God saves us by justifying us and by sanctifying us. And sanctifying doesn't just mean forget about sins. It means undo them. He is sanctifying and cleansing us that he might present a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. What happened to it? We are a new creation. If the gospel doesn't get rid of your sexual sins in the past, if it leaves you broken, what good is it? If you have to suffer with the weight of past failures, where's the salvation? You are paying for your sins. The gospel says that Christ paid for your sins. And whatever happened to you or whatever you did will be undone. You will be made whole again. Do you understand what that means in a sexual context? Let's apply this to life. And don't let legalistic, moralistic preachers undermine the gospel to get you to not have sex with people. 
That's what they're doing. They want you to live right, so they load you up with guilt and a hope that you will do right so you won't feel bad. That's wrong. The gospel says this in Revelation 19, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. See the power? Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You will stand before God clothed only in righteousness. Not a thing you've ever done in the past that was wrong will be with you. It will all be gone. You see how big the gospel is? Just saying God forgives you of what you did in the past isn't enough. You need healing. You need to be made whole again. That's what Christ offers you. The gospel is not just for forgiveness of sins, but for the undoing of sins. If you're not a Christian, you'll be broken your whole life. But if you're a Christian, Christ will make you a new creature, perfect, spotless, a faithful bride that he is proud of. The law won't give it to you, but Christ can. Let's pray.